You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the Axeman of New Orleans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Mysteries Still Unsolved. I am so glad to be back here in my little office, aka walk-in closet, to talk about one of my favorite things with you, true crime. Um, I am actually currently eye-to-eye with a raven. It's a Halloween decoration. I decided I wanted to spruce my office up a little bit, and I feel like a raven sitting atop a skeleton is pretty on brand. So just a little fun. Uh, Today's case is going to be an old timey case, which I am super excited about. Um, Whenever I cover like unsolved murders, especially like the more recent ones, I always feel terrible because like if they had not met their untimely demise at the hands of a psychopath, they would most likely still be alive. But I guess I take like a little bit of comfort, like as horrible as that sounds. Um, like when it's an old timey case, because I'm like, okay, well, it's been over like a hundred years. Chances are that had they not been killed in a brutal way or like murdered, they would have probably been dead by now from something else. So I don't know. In my mind, that makes the pill a little bit easier to swallow, but I'm not at all trying to suggest or advocate that killing anyone within any time period is okay. Let me just state that for the record, but it just makes it a little bit easier when it's so long ago. And especially with like these new cases where you can like log into your Instagram and log into your Facebook and you can like see pictures of them, see videos of them, hear their voice. It just makes it so real. It's so much easier to kind of like desensitize yourself when you're looking at a black and white crime scene photo. Does that make sense? I feel like maybe you guys are losing respect for me, but hopefully there's a few of you out there sprinkled around in the universe that like understand what I'm saying. Um, before we get into the case I have planned for today, I just wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, for starters, if you are not already following me on Instagram at mystery still unsolved or visiting my website at, on a regular basis at www.mysterystillunsolved.com, what the heck, dude? I thought we were friends. Um, I was looking at my statistics on Podbean the other day. That's kind of like where I host and post my uh, podcast episodes every week. And it informed me that my little true crime podcast has been downloaded almost 30,000 times. That means 30,000 times one of you has taken a moment in your crazy and hectic and chaotic day to cozy in and wind down with one of my episodes. And first off, I am so honored. I know that there are many other ways that you could be relaxing, but um, thank you for choosing this way. Um, and then at the same time, I went over to my podcast reviews and I only have 20 reviews. Eh. Hmm. Do you see where I'm, where I'm going with this? Do you uh, see the discrepancy there? 30,000 listens, but only 20 reviews. 
So um, if you haven't had a chance to review my podcast, but you like it and you want other people's ears to be blessed with the originality and the mysticism that is mystery still unsolved, won't you please leave me a review? It will boost my true crime podcast to the top of the list when it comes to the like enigma that is algorithms. And that would be just so cool. Um, okay, next order of business. I think I've guilt tripped you guys long enough. Um, I've been talking about this next topic for a very, very long time, but it's finally done. If you have been to my Instagram account lately, you may have noticed something looks a little different. Yes, my new logo is done. Wahoo! I am so excited to have a logo that is a bit more mature. It's something that feels like a little bit more reflective of me and my podcast and my brand. So go on over and take a look at it and let me know what you think of it. Um, But also, you know what that means. Merch is um, I don't have an exact date yet, but I am hoping, fingers crossed, that you will be able to have your very own Mystery Still Unsolved merch by the end of the year. Perhaps Christmas. Oh my gosh. You guys, I am so excited. So again, if you're not following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved or my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com, you totally should because... I want you to be the first to know when I drop the very first pre-order, whenever that ends up happening. I don't want you to miss out. I want you to be able to like, to like be wearing a mystery still unsolved hoodie as you drink from a mystery still unsolved mug and listen to mystery still unsolved. Like how cool would that be? Okay. Is that it? I feel like I had one more thing. Oh yes. Nope. Yep. Yep. I'm not done. I'm not done. Okay. I cannot believe that I almost forgot this, but by the end of this week, we will be in October. And if you've been here for a while, you actually probably don't even need to be here for that long of a while because I feel like I talk about this a lot, but you know what that means to me. It means it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, my spooky Halloween series is just around the corner. So next week, we will have our first episode of our third Halloween series. Can you believe it? I have so many peculiar, inexplicable perplexing and bewildering topics planned for this year's series. And I cannot wait to share each and every original episode with you. Also, don't forget that sometime within the month of October, I will be hosting a giveaway. You won't know when unless you're following me on Instagram or up to date on my podcast episodes. So make sure you are subscribed to my Instagram account and that you hit that notification bell. Okay, now we are really ready to dive in headfirst to today's episode. The year was 1918, and over the period of 18 months, the city of New Orleans, usually known for its party town vibes and its reputation for being a place where insatiable desires are satisfied, the people of New Orleans were traumatized by a dark entity, an entity who would enter the homes of sleeping families and brutally attack them. Some called him the boogeyman, 
Some believed he was a supernatural creature, but the killer himself wanted to be known as simply the Axeman. Not only would the Axeman strike primarily at night, but he would also never bring with him his own weapons, instead choosing to use things he could find within the victim's own homes, usually an axe. Within his 18-month reign of terror, it is believed that the Axeman attacked at least 12 people and killed six. So, let's take it back to the start. On May 23, 1918, in a little home located at 4901 Magnolia Street, the Axeman claimed his first victims. Catherine and Joseph Maggio were brutally attacked with an axe as they slept. Then the Axeman slit both of their throats with a razor blade and overkill much. Jeez. But I mean, if this was supposedly his first attack, which I don't really think it was, but if we're to believe that this was his first attack, then it kind of makes sense that he was going to go overboard to ensure that there were no witnesses. Catherine was almost entirely decapitated and Joseph sustained significant injuries. The two were discovered the following morning by Joseph's own brothers who lived with him in the home. The brothers claim that they didn't hear anything and that no valuables of any kind seemed to have been taken. I just want to pause, do a little bit of couch potato sleuthing. You know that we're, that's what I'm known for, couch potato sleuthing. Um, It appears that Catherine and Joseph were specifically targeted because why else would they have been the only two of the four people residing within the home to be murdered? Either the killer wanted to kill these two people specifically, or perhaps he was unaware that other people were even living within the home. I'm sure you could even suspect The two brothers might have had something to do with it, but I didn't find anything within my research that suggested that Joseph Maggio's brothers were ever considered suspects. One thing that is interesting and will continue to arise among the incidents I go over today is that the bottom panel of some doors were knocked out, which either the killer then crawled through or perhaps used it as a way to like partially get in and then unlock the door before crawling back out of it and then opening the door. Um, But even though fingerprints were most definitely a thing in 1918, it wasn't like necessarily common practice. So unfortunately, no fingerprints were ever retrieved from any of the crime scenes. Kind of seems like a fail, but I guess I can give them a little bit of a pass because it was in 1918. Um, I feel like the bottom panel of the door being kicked out could also be a major clue, but only if we are able to determine like why he did that. Um, because we would need to know if the suspect crawled through, because if the suspect did climb through to gain entry into the home, this could give us a very good idea and approximation of the suspect's build, because you would have to be a pretty narrow individual, like have a narrow frame in order to climb through like a little panel like that. So I wish we knew if like any foreign fingerprints not belonging to anyone in the home had been found on the door handle, um, but we just don't. Uh, nevertheless, the only piece of evidence retrieved by the police was the Maggio's own axe, which was the main murder weapon. A little over a month later, on June 28, 1918, near the corner of, I'm going to butcher this French Creole name, De Jorna and La Harpe Streets, another attack by the axeman occurred. Louis Bessemer and Anna Lowe were discovered by a baker named John Zanka. 
The baker had been out delivering bread when he came upon the two bloodied bodies. Lewis actually survived his attack, and Anna did survive for seven weeks before she did eventually succumb to her injuries. Before Anna died, she was able to communicate a little bit to the police. She reported that she awoke to a looming dark figure standing near her bed. She described him as a large white male who carried a hatchet, and as soon as she opened her eyes, he began to attack her. Lewis had no memory of the attack whatsoever, and the baker who discovered the couple was actually considered a suspect for a while um, before suspicion of him like ended up deteriorating. But yes, I feel so bad for that baker. Like this is a baker. He's just doing his job, making his deliveries, and then he sees this horrendous thing, and he's just trying to do the right thing and call the police to get some help for his customers. Um, and then like the police cast suspicion on him. And one, that doesn't make people want to report a crime if they're like the first ones to stumble across it. Um, and two, I don't even want to think about how this accusation might have affected that poor man and his business. Because like, you know that even though he was absolved of any wrongdoing, that there were probably many people who were still like, I don't know if that guy really didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, would you want to buy bread and tasty treats from a dude you think is an ex-murderer? I mean, my gut instinct wants to say, heck no, I wouldn't want to support somebody who is accused of being an ex-murderer, but I would also need to determine how tasty these treats were because y'all know I have a sweet tooth. And if this possible Axeman Baker was the best in town, kind of think that I would have let my sweet tooth get the better of me. Um, but whatever. He was absolved of any suspicion. So we should all just leave the muffin man alone. Okay. Um, the bottom panel of the couple's bedroom door was missing. And once again, the bloody axe was left at the scene. Okay. Okay. So rewind. So this is a bit curious to me because in the first incident, there was a missing panel on the kitchen door. And that makes sense to me because I just kind of like assumed that the kitchen door was like an entry to the home. Um, and I also don't know how like how far the kitchen was from the bedrooms, but a missing panel on the bedroom door. Wouldn't that cause like, I don't know, like a lot of racket or something? I don't know, like, A, why the killer would have to remove the bottom panel to a bedroom door. Like, was the bedroom door locked? And B, like, how did the couple sleep through that? No one ever questioned. And this is why I feel I wish I had a time machine because all of my brilliant ideas could be really useful <laughs> back in 1918. But no one ever seemed to really question that as far as I can tell from the research that I conducted. But I did find that a little odd and thought that I'd share my confusion with you regarding this topic because you guys are my friends. Um, almost a month later, on August 5th, 1918, the Axeman struck again for the third time. Mrs. Ed Schneider was found in the late afternoon by her husband. Mrs. Schneider was still alive when she was found by her husband and was rushed to Charity Hospital, where she would later survive her attack. It was later determined that the axe that the Schneiders kept in their shed was missing. 
What I think is just astounding is not only did Mrs. Snyder, which apparently she doesn't deserve to have her first name in here. I mean, we got to remember it was the 1918 and nobody cared about women. Okay. They were just known as Mrs. Snyder. Okay. Um, she not only survived her gruesome attack, but at the time of her attack, she was like eight to eight and a half months pregnant. And the following week she gave birth to a healthy little son. Now that is what I call a bad bit. Five days later, on August 10th, 80-year-old Joseph Romano, who lived near Tony and Gra- Gravier Street, was found by his nieces Pauline and Mary after they heard him struggling in his room. But by the time the nieces got to his room, their uncle's head was bashed in and a tall, dark figure with a black trench coat and a slouch hat raced from the room. The women were not able to get a good look at his face. So this kind of explains why the Axemen of New Orleans was kind of considered like the physical manifestation of the boogeyman because even when witnesses would see him, they were never able to recall anything about his facial features. Even though like some of these attacks like will happen in the middle of the day. Um, Also, I want to make sure that we don't ignore some key discrepancies here, though. So, okay, with Mrs. Snyder, the Axeman broke away from his normal routine. I mean, he had never before killed during the day. And also, the amount of time between the two attacks of Mrs. Snyder and Mr. Romano was the shortest it had ever been. It would appear that the Axeman's insatiable need to attack was spiraling, like he was escalating. And that's what makes what follows so perplexing. As you can imagine, with Mr. Romano's case being the fourth attack and still not even a suspect to be announced by the police, the people of New Orleans had kind of like given up on their ability to protect them. One of the newspaper articles at the time wrote, quote, armed men are keeping watch over their sleeping families. The police attempt to solve the mysteries of these axe attacks extra police are being put to work, end quote. This is where the timeline kind of goes like wonky because for almost seven months, there were no more attacks perpetrated by the Axeman. And that, like, doesn't that seem strange? Like he attacks two people, a pregnant lady and an elderly person in less than a week. And then he just takes a seven month hiatus. More on my thoughts about that later on in the episode. On March 10th, 1919, again, seven months has passed since his last victim, the Cordomiglia family was attacked. Rose awoke to her husband, Charles, in a fight for his life with the Axeman, a fight that the Axeman would win. Rose, Charles, and their two-year-old daughter, Mary, would all be the Axeman's victims. Surprisingly, Rose and Charles were able to make a full recovery, but the same could not be said about little Mary, who did die from her injuries. It makes me so sad. I don't like when kids get hurt or die. Um, and this is another change from the routine. Like, the Axeman had never injured a child before. Was he just, like, so charged up because he had taken such, like, a long like murder fast and then he was just excited to finally be back at his grisly antics or what exactly had this axeman been up to in the last seven months 
Many believe, including myself, that there is just no way in freaking hell that the axe man was able to control his compulsions for that long. It is in my opinion and the opinion of many others that research this case that the axe man may have left the city of New Orleans and traveled west. Perhaps during this time, he honed his skills, perfected his ghastly craft, and started something new, annihilating entire families. One theory is that the Axeman of New Orleans and the perpetrator of the Axe murders of Villisca, a case that we covered not too long ago on this very podcast, are one in the same. If you need a little recap, the murders of Villisca is the case where a family of six and two additional house guests were murdered in the night as they slept. The perpetrator of these horrendous crimes is still unknown and it just so happens that those murders occurred within the seven-month window where nothing was going on in New Orleans. Is it possible that the Axeman felt he might be caught because he kind of killed two people or tried to kill two people in one week so he fled the area only to return seven months later when like nothing was really happening? It's certainly possible but what I don't think is possible is that this horrendous evil individual was able to like curb his murdery appetite for seven whole months there's just no way in hell you're ever gonna be able to convince me that of that all right so five days after the axeman claimed the life of innocent two-year-old mary cordomiglia a large paper received a letter which claimed to be from the axeman himself And we've seen this sort of thing before. The Zodiac Killer taunted the police with riddles and codes, egging on the police and stroking his own ego and like terrifying the community. Jack the Ripper also supposedly wrote a note to police. However, the validity of this letter is still debated upon. And you can read all about that or hear all about that, I guess, in my Jack the Ripper episode. And I also did a Zodiac Killer episode, too. Guys, I've been doing a lot of episodes. You guys need to, if you haven't heard these ones, you need to listen to them. Um, But the validity of the letter from the Jack the Ripper is still kind of debated upon. And the son of Sam, like, seriously, I could go on forever. There are so many of these people that, like, egg on they want the fame they want the glory and so they'll write letters to the press or to the police to kind of taunt them but let's get back to the axeman so the axeman he he sort of had a flair for like the theatrics and drama you'll you'll understand okay so the letter he wrote to the paper read as follows quote like you know when you put like the date at the top of your letter like march whatever he wrote Hell, March 13th, 1919. See, we're already to a good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Start. Okay, it gets, it gets more interesting. Okay, so it's, this is how it reads. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal. Yes, esteemed mortal. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible, even as the ether which surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from hottest hell. I am who you New Orleans and police call the Axeman. He then goes on to like insult the intelligence and abilities of the police and also gives a threat. Quote, they, as in the police, 
have been so incredibly stupid so as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better they were never born than for them to incur the wrath of the Axeman, end quote. He also goes on to remind the community of New Orleans that it could be much worse. Quote, undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. At will, I could slay thousands of you citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death, end quote. He then goes on, he goes a little like rogue, and uh, kind of takes like a 180 turn. It's kind of funny, actually, but he goes on to give a much more specific threat to the people of New Orleans, and this threat, as crazy as it is, <laughs> um, and very specific, uh, this threat would go on to terrify the entire city. So let me, let me tell you, this is where it takes a turn, you guys. Quote, now, to be exact, at 12.15 o'clock, earthly time, yes, he wrote that. Um, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, he goes on. On next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass by New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to the people. And here it is. And this is where things take a turn. So buckle up. Um, he goes on. I am very fond of jazz music. Is this a personal ad? Like if you like pina coladas type of thing? Or are you trying to, like, threaten somebody? Anyways, goes on. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is some of the persons who do not jazz it again his words not mine jazz it on tuesday night if there be any will get the axe end quote so basically just to sum up if you were living in new orleans in 1918 on tuesday night you better be jazzing it baby <laughs> there's something like okay so there's something like a little bit Old Testamenty, is that a word? Old Testamenty, to me about this whole letter. Like, not only is he referring to like being a spirit and that he lives in the ether and and he's working with the devil, but the passing over of the houses playing jazz music is giving me like plagues of Egypt Moses vibes. I'm of course referring to the story of Passover when Moses told the people that if they painted the blood of a lamb on their door, then the spirit of death would pass over them. However, if they did not paint the blood of a lamb over their door, then the spirit would enter and kill every firstborn son. Um, this is a holiday. It's called Passover and practicing Jewish people still participate in this today. Um, I mean, Sam's sheep blood, of course. Uh, but this letter that the Axeman wrote would later inspire the jazz song entitled Don't Scare Me Papa. So like this letter 
influenced like popular culture at the time and I've never heard that song before but I might try to find it and I'll put it on my Instagram like in the stories or something we'll take a little listen to it we'll dissect it we'll talk about it Um, but as you can probably predict the people of New Orleans were in a full-on panic and you better believe it that on that night people were jazzing it jazzing it trademark that baby um family and friends gathered together to listen to jazz at their homes and those who did not own a record player poured into local jazz clubs to steer clear of the axe man's wrath true to his word not a soul was killed on the night of march 19 1919 another like five months would take place before another axe murder occurred in new orleans On August 10th, 1919, Steve Boca was badly injured in his home after he awoke to the sight of a man standing at the foot of his bed with an axe. Boca survived his attack, and after the axeman left, he was able to stagger to a friend's home who then called the police. But Boca never retained his memory of that night. Later that same month, 19-year-old Sarah Lauman was brutally attacked by the axeman, Um, and he had entered her room through an open window. After she regained consciousness, she could not recall any details. Okay, about two months after that, on October 27th, 1919, supposedly, and I'll kind of get into that, Axeman struck for the final time. Esther Pepitone awoke at around 1 a.m. to the sounds of her husband screaming in the other room. She ran to find him being brutally attacked. Um, Her husband had been struck in the head 18 times and he died two hours later. Esther claimed she saw two figures but could not provide police with any information that could help to identify him. This is interesting because in the report that we do have, keep in mind, most people don't remember, but in the cases where there is a witness, there has never been a report of two men, two attackers. It's always been just one. Also, the weapon used at this crime was not an axe, but a huge bolt, like something that would be used to secure like a large circus tent to the ground. So not an axe. And it's also worth mentioning that the circus was in town that week. So this is either a huge deviation from the Axeman's pattern, or I think it's more likely a copycat. All right. So this concludes the end of the Axeman's 18-month reign of terror. Now that you know the deets, let's dive into some theories about this case. I know I've kind of been like sprinkling them in here and there, but let's really dive into a few that are the most discussed. The first theory I already alluded to, which is basically just that not all of the killings were that work of the Axeman. A lot of people think that the last killing of Mike Pepitone was the work of the mafia um, because apparently he had mafia ties in so much that like He didn't really have the ties, but his father had been killed in the past for his mafia dealings. Another attack that is scrutinized is the second attack on Louis Bessemer and Anna Lowe. As you recall, Louis was severely injured, but his partner, Anna Lowe, was killed. Um, In a bizarre twist, Louis Bessemer was actually tried and convicted of Anna Lowe's death as police believed he killed Anna 
and then injured himself to make it look as though he had been attacked by the elusive axe man. Now, as wild as that sounds, the police didn't just pull that theory out of their butts. Like, I'll give them a little bit of credit. Because apparently, like, Anna's the one that she got attacked, and then she she was making a full recovery. It was very optimistic. And then she just died, like, seven weeks later. So apparently, before Anna passed, she made a statement to police that Lewis did it because he was a Nazi spy. The police later found Yiddish letters which indicated several correspondences with people in Europe associated with the Nazi party. So police believed that Lewis must be a spy. Later on, after he had been serving jail for a little bit, medical doctors were able to convince the governor of Louisiana that there literally was no possible way for a person to inflict those sort of wounds upon themselves. And Louis Bessemer was acquitted of all charges. The second theory is, in my opinion, not even a theory worth being pursued seriously, but it is hilarious. So, some believe the Axeman to be a supernatural figure that had the ability to silently slip through tiny entranceways, either because he like shrunk himself down to the size of a mouse, or perhaps he became like this gas, which like just kind of like filtered through the room. Um, and then after he would get into the room, he would resume his natural large form. And that's what witnesses claim to have seen at some of the attacks, like literally like the boogeyman or Freddy Krueger. Like that is what people were thinking at that time. And it kind of makes you think that the person who wrote and directed like Nightmare on Elm Street, um, what's his name? Uh, oh yes. Wes, Wes, um, Craven. Yes. Wes Craven. Was he familiar with this case? I don't know if that's real. I'm literally just making that up, but wouldn't that be so interesting? Okay, editor's note. (laughs) So literally, I recorded this entire podcast, and then I just, like, could not get the idea that maybe, like, Wes Craven uses as inspiration for his movie out of my head, Um, just because I wanted to know. Um, So I did a little bit of research. Um about what inspired the basis of the film. Um, And I was led to several newspaper articles um, where it stated that the idea for the movie came from uh, the accounts of Hmong refugees um, who had fled uh, to the U.S. because of war and genocide in their countries, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And they had suffered disturbing nightmares and many refused to sleep. And this is kind of what re- like inspired Wes Craven to create the script. So it wasn't based on a real murder, but it's still a cool fact. Anyway, back to your regular programming. All right, moving on. The third theory that a lot of people believe, but I just don't buy it, is an actual suspect. His name was Joseph Mumphrey. To navigate this theory, we must return to the last and final crime, the crime against Esther and Mike Pepitone. If you recall, Esther survived, but her husband did not. Esther later relocated to Los Angeles, California with a new husband named Angelo Albano. However, on the second anniversary of her husband's, her first husband's death, Angelo, her new husband, left for work one morning and was never seen again. So either 
Esther is involved somehow because seriously, like what are the chances you have two husbands that die slash disappear on the same date? It's quite a coincidence. Or Esther had like the worst luck ever. Um, anyway, Esther remembered that shortly before Angelo's disappearance, he had ended business relations with a man who went by many names. One of those names was Mumfrey. On December 5th, 1921, Mumfrey found Esther in Los Angeles and visited her home. He demanded $500, all of her fine jewelry, and threatened to, quote, kill her the same way he had killed her first husband, end quote, which led Esther to promptly plot twist, shoot him in the face dead. Um, yes, Esther's another bad A in this tale. Okay, so many believe that the location of Esther's home is the exact location of where the Axeman finally received justice, but I disagree. While it's possible, and I even think it, it's probable. Mumfrey was indeed the man who killed both of Esther's husband. It's also possible that he just heard about Esther's first husband and attempted to use that knowledge to threaten Esther in order to get her to comply. Like seriously, Angelo, her second husband, could have told Mumfrey about it in passing as they had done business together. And like there's no television in 1921. So like what else are they really going to talk about other than like something really exciting that happened to his wife? But I don't think Mumfrey was the Axeman simply because I don't think that the last murder credited to the Axeman was the Axeman at all. Everything was different in that case. There were two men, a different weapon was used altogether. There were mafia ties. I don't know. I'm just not convinced. I don't think I'm going to hop on that bandwagon. It's too fishy. So regardless that Esther said Mumfrey was the man, because remember, she witnessed the men that were running away, and regardless of the fact that Mumfrey did have ties and there was evidence linking him to Mike Pepitone's murder, I like I think that he might have murdered Mike Pepitone, but I don't think he was the Axeman. He was probably just piggybacking on the Axeman and killed my Pepitone in a similar, but albeit not exact way, to get the blame pinned on the Axeman. So, you know, essentially a copycat. Another thing of interest is that apparently back in New Orleans, Mumfrey had led a blackmailing gang who preyed on Italian immigrants. And not all, but most of the people who were killed by the Axeman were of Italian heritage. Apparently, most of the victims were Italian grocers, to be specific. Like, that's a very specific niche if, if he was doing that purposefully. <laughs> um, I guess there would need to be evidence proving that all of the victims, in one way or another, had owed Mumfrey money, which I didn't see that they were able to prove. Anyway, only circumstantial evidence exists that point to Mumfrey being the axe killer, but no concrete evidence. And then, of course, the last theory is another one we've touched on already, that the New Orleans Axeman, the axe murder of Velisca, and the Southern Pacific Railroad axe murder, axe murder, are all one and the same. Because cops barely communicate with each other across state lines now. So can you believe in the 1910s when there's like no internet, no news channels that cover brutal cases all over the country. Like, 
you could have a very similar axe murder occurring just one state over. And if you were working in the police department, you could maybe never even hear about it. I don't doubt it, but also it seemed like in the 1910s, there were a lot of people getting killed by axes. I mean, holy heck. Uh, you don't really hear about people being murdered by axes anymore. And for that, I'm grateful. But it just seems like in the 1910s, every day, somebody was just getting hacked away with a crazy person with an axe. Um, I would be afraid to sleep if that was what was going on around me. Like, I would not own an axe. I would have bars along my windows. Like, please don't kill me with an axe. Um, this is a bit off topic, but I was watching this a couple of episodes, like on Netflix the other day. It's like this show called like I survived, but it's not like the I survived. That's huge. It's like a different thing anyways. Um, so there was a surprising number of people in that show who like either like someone broke into their home or like tried to hijack their car or some sort of like road rage incident where like the victim would pull out a machete and, like, confront their attacker. And this made me feel like, why are all these people carrying around machetes all willy-nilly? And, like, should I get a machete? Because, seriously, it seemed like everyone just has one. Maybe this is a fun fact I was never previously made privy to. I mean, in high school, my husband said he had a machete in his car as a joke. And now I'm just wondering, like, did I miss the machete train? Like, maybe it's some sort of an exclusive club to which I have never been invited. And that's rude. Um, so there is now like an 80% chance that if you were to review my Google history, you might see that I have been pursuing the webs in search of a machete, which might mean I'm on some sort of list. But I mean, come on. Based off the things I researched for this podcast, you know I've got to be on at least a couple of lists by now. Like the other day, I googled, how does lie work? So yeah, hopefully I'm never accused of a crime or I am screwed because I'm going to be like looking at my Google history and being like, this girl's researched like how does lie work, how to dispose of a body, how to keep like a body from floating up after you dra- like put it in a lake. Like I would just be so screwed. Um, anyway tangent over. Also, that's it for today's episode. Um, thank you all for joining me. I hope that you've had fun and that you've learned a fun, like a few fun facts along the way. I also am curious as to what you make of this episode. Um, I want to know your thoughts, your theories, and your opinions, your comments on who you think done it. Uh, would you like to know how you can better support this podcast? Of course you do. Um, follow me on Instagram at mystery still unsolved hit that notification bell, ding, 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 and you'll be notified every time I release a new episode or make a new post or go live or post a story. Um, you can interact with my post uh, so more people will see them. Even if you just like comment a skull emoji, like that works with the algorithms or whatever. Um, don't forget to visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Soon we will have merch. I'm just working out the logistics of that the best way that I can. So seriously, like really soon, hopefully by the end of this year, leave me a five-star review on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It doesn't have to be Apple. I'm not, I'm not opposed to any, I'm not anti, anti Apple. Okay, you can also tell a true crime-loving friend or family member about me and don't feel like you've got to limit it to family and friends. You could tell your CPA, 
tax season's coming up, baby. Uh, your kid's bus driver, your babysitter, as long as you're totally okay with never seeing them again because it might creep them out. I don't know. Um, you tell your local librarian. You could use it to strike up a conversation with a very good-looking firefighter. I want everyone to know about Mystery Still Unsolved. Um, thank you so much again for joining me. And don't forget that the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?